0: Here at Calvary Chopper Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Well, good morning again. It is good to be here with everyone this morning. So blessed to uh, be worshiping with you guys. And as you see by the sermon intro there, we are beginning a new book today. So we'll start a new journey in the letter to the Romans. And so I do pray that you are excited about that. I am. I can tell you that. And uh, Romans is certainly an incredible book. As we begin this uh, new journey through this uh, book today, we know that it is penned. By the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, last week we considered some of the life of Paul, uh, specifically his sense of calling his own sense of responsibility to preach the gospel and to serve the Lord. And today, as we dive into Romans, really just Paul's introduction is all we'll look at today, verses 1 through 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Romans 1, 1 through 17. We're going to consider today much of the same as we continue to understand how Paul viewed himself we're going to look today at, at, at a passage of Scripture, beginning here at the beginning of Romans, uh, where, where Paul really gives us an understanding of how he views himself, what his identity is, and then... Furthermore, what his priorities are and what we can learn from that. We should look to Paul and others in Scripture as an example. We are not to look at Paul and to simply say, well, this is who Paul is and this is what he considered important and that was him and and, and that's good for him. No, there is an aspect of an example that he's giving us that should be adopted by all believers. Now this letter, and so just to give us some context here this morning, a little bit of background, this letter is believed to have been written from the city of Corinth. Uh, Paul had spent some time there and specifically during his third missionary journey when he stopped to stay there for about three months, Acts Chapter 20, verse 3 tells us that. And so it must have seemed fitting during this time for Paul to write this letter. He was kind of wintering there. It was a place, a stopping point before he began on his journey again and then made his way down from Miletus along Ephesus as he was making his way towards Jerusalem. We considered parts of Acts chapter 20 last week. And so he's in Corinth and he's writing this letter uh, and it's believed to have been written somewhere between the years 53 and 58 AD. Paul had been a Christian at this point for upward of 20 years. And he was engaged through that time in, in traveling, in preaching, in teaching. And, and for some time, he has been desiring to go and see the church in Rome. And so he's writing this letter to a church, to a people whom he'd never met. That's one of the unique things about the letter to the Romans, is he had not met them. Now, perhaps some of them, yes, but uh, as a whole, he did not know them. And that's what makes this letter different in many respects to his other letters. Unlike his other letters, he's writing to fellowships that he had met. Perhaps he had even played a role in establishing them and then writing, in most cases, to address specific issues, to correct doctrine, to answer questions, to deal with things that were kind of popping up, maybe false teachers who were coming into the church. And in the case of Romans, he's writing to say, I I want to come there. I want to come to you. I want to see you. He says, it's my desire to, to meet you. But being aware of the fact that they don't know him personally, and further, that there is a chance that he may not get there. I mean, Paul recognizes that even at the beginning of his letter. He says, though he wants to, he, he, he may not. And so he writes in a way where he, in more detail, lays out who he is. And he writes a letter that in some ways could serve to accomplish much of the work without even his visiting. So, Whereas we we draw much from his other letters as he addresses specific issues, as he answers various questions, those letters are more focused on particular items. Whereas for Romans, we have to some degree an overall apologetic of the Christian faith, highlighting key doctrines. That's what makes it such an incredible book. It's such a, a, a unique work in and of itself. That Paul here gives us such a thorough doctrinal text that serves to explain much of the Christian faith. And it gives us insight then into sound doctrine. The things that we believe and why we should believe them and, and what about them we believe. And, and so... For him to have written this letter to, to, to cover these items, to explain these things, really without being there to teach it. For example, uh, justification by faith is something you may have heard about before. And, and this is really drawn our understanding of justification by faith really comes from what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. It's this idea that somehow God could be both just, that God is in fact a just a holy and righteous God, yet He's also the justifier of sinners like you and me. That's a concept that when we really begin to when we think about who God is, when we think about the character of God, and that God could accomplish what He, ha- what he has in our salvation, is really an incredible truth. And, and how is it that that justification comes? How is it that we are justified by faith? By believing it. And then believing leads to obedience. And so these types of truths that we understand, that we sort of uh, incorporate into our faith, that we know this is how these things are accomplished, this is how we live these things out, much of this is covered in this book. It gives us an understanding, a wonderful understanding of our salvation and so many other things that we'll deal with as we make our way through this letter. And so for this reason... This letter has had tremendous impact throughout history. While the Bible as a whole is the most influential book ever, the greatest selling book of all time, it is not a stretch to say that Romans alone is also one of the most influential of all time, having been used by the Holy Spirit to transform the lives of some very influential people. From Augustine the, the bishop at Hippo, to, to Martin Luther, to John Wesley. Those three individuals in particular, hopefully you at least recognize their names, each of these men credited their reading of Romans to their own salvation. I mean, this is, the book of Romans is what Martin Luther said sparked for him his effort in the Reformation. To other individuals like John Calvin, Samuel Coleridge, John Bunyan, the inspiration for Pilgrim's Progress, comes from Romans. G. Campbell Morgan, this letter has done much to solidify many an understanding of salvation and the foundations of the faith. And my hope is that it does the same for us as we continue to make our way through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've now considered much of the New Testament over the last several years. If some of you were thinking that we'd go, some of you especially that have joined us more recently, if you were thinking we'd go from the Gospels right into Acts, we've been in Acts already. You can go back and listen to my teaching on Acts online uh, from a few years ago for review if you'd like to. But we've yet to tackle Romans until now. And I trust that the Lord is going to do much to strengthen our own faith as we consider it. But there will also be some challenges as we make our way through it, no doubt. Such an influential text a a, a letter that deals with so much doctrine, Uh, there's a depth and a significance to Romans that requires a very prayerful approach, in my opinion. Both, I would say by me as a pastor, but all of us as students, as disciples. In fact, uh, pastor and author Kent Hughes, who I respect a great deal, suggests the following prayer as we begin our study, and I thought it fitting that we would pray such a prayer uh, here as we begin. And so if you would agree with me. Father, we know that a humble spirit is indispensable to learning. We pray that as we now consider the themes of Romans, as we, as we begin this journey into the book of Romans, this book that is so great, this, this book of such history, but this book that sometimes, Lord, is so familiar that we would be humble, that through the study of it, You would give us a spirit of humility, that we will be constantly learning, even from the familiar. And Lord, we pray that the power that was exhibited by Your Spirit in the lives of Augustine and Luther and Wesley and so many others, that power which comes from understanding the fundamental doctrines of the faith, and and how we approach them in life, that that same power will be seen in us. Father, I pray that you would give us a continued spirit of humility, that we would continue in prayer throughout this study, and that ultimately your blessing would be upon our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we begin in... Romans in chapter 1, as I mentioned already, we'll consider verses 1 through 17 here this morning, which really is just Paul's introduction, and we'll see how even his introduction is packed with truth for us to consider. We read here at the beginning in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. We'll pause there. What, what an introduction. What it is, even this first sentence here is, he's just saying, this is, this is who I am. Remember, they know of Paul, no doubt, many of them, but they don't know him personally. Paul so begins his letter then with a statement of, of who he is. And, and what does he say? Does he say, I'm Paul. You know, I'm kind of a big deal. Let me tell you all the things that I've accomplished. Let me tell you about all the things that I've learned. Let me, let me tell you about all the ways in which you should respect me. It's such an incredible thing. You know, it, we, we do this in our culture, right? We seek to, when we tell people about ourselves or when we have other people tell people about us, we want to have our resume, right? We are constantly in this place of seeking to provide credibility. If we're going to speak, if we're going to appeal to somebody, well, we got to make sure that we have a reputation, right, that we can lean back on, that we have letters after our names, that we have, here's all the things that I've accomplished, all the things I've done. And we know that if Paul specifically, he said, if there's anybody who could boast, it would be me. But he says, but I count all of this as loss compared to the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I don't care about my background. It means nothing. It's man's vain pursuits. Here, as Paul is introducing himself to a people he longed to meet, a people who he did not know, and they really didn't know him, and he's trying to, and so because of this, he has nothing to stand on in terms of their previous interactions. For him and their willingness to receive him when he eventually gets there, you would think he really needs to make a great impression. thing is, is he does. He does make a great impression, because what does he say? He says, "He says, I'm a bond servant." This is the Greek word "doulos," and it means slave. It means slave, and within this culture, not the good kind. Now, was there a good kind? Not really, though. In this culture at this time, there was varying levels of slavery. Some almost is similar to uh, an employer-employee relationship. Upwards of 40 to 50%, some people say, of the culture was in some sort of indebted slavery, oftentimes under a financial contract. It, it should be understood that it's not uh, the likes of what we are more familiar with in American history. But I would say none of it good. Such a system, such a classification, by no means good. Though it's important for us to understand, for Paul to say "doulos" was really to identify with the lowest level. So even within a culture that has said, "Here's varying degrees, and, and here's kind of the the level that maybe you would want to be at," if you're putting yourself in such a category, he says, "No, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put myself at the lowest level here." He's writing here to say, "I want to know you. I want to come." I want to spend time amongst you. I want to influence you, as we'll, as we'll see. And, and in really three words, he said, I'm Paul, a slave. What a way to enhance his credibility, right? But it does. Once again, it does. Because right off the bat, what we see Paul emphasizing here is that he's about serving. He is a servant. His life is marked by servitude. Servitude. He's saying, This is what I want to do. I want to serve. And who am I serving? Christ. This is rooted in Scripture. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Right, there's a good pattern for him to follow here. He writes to his letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verses 1-5, through 5, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God from the very beginning Paul is seeking to exalt Jesus Christ above all else and so yes this absolutely enhances his credibility and it does our own should we follow in a similar pattern Paul had every reason to tout his credentials but in humility he exalted Christ Now, how does he have such humility? How is a man who is so learned and so powerful and so accomplished able to take such a humble approach? Well, because he knew who he was. Not only is he a slave to Christ, but he says he is called to be an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. He understands the calling that's on his life. Now listen, this does not then mean that he is boasting. The fact that he's called to be an apostle. Rather, for Paul, this is such a work of grace. Because for him, he was a persecutor of the church. When Paul says called to be an apostle, I think Paul says it every time with just this sense of surprise. He writes uh, to the church in, in Galatia, in, in Galatians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he writes For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But but then what? He follows that in verses 15-17. through He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, His unmerited favor towards me to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. He said, then I went. He says once again, here's what I did and here's the things that I sought after and here's the things that that, that were were terrible, treacherous. But then God called me. He showed me grace. He changed me, transformed me. So let's look at what Paul is saying. If, if, If we sort of trim it down, he says, Paul, a slave called and set apart for what the gospel for the gospel he says Paul a bond of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God this is what it was for and so it's the gospel this is his introduction who he is right a slave called set apart for this purpose now that's identity Right When we think about identity in a culture today that is so focused on identity, and in many respects, rightfully so, because there's so much coming at us from the world telling us what we should be, what we shouldn't be, how we should think, how we should feel, how we should function, to know our identity and for, to understand that in Christ. And so here's the thing, Christian, as he talks about his identity here, as Paul very, very succinctly says, this is who I am, it's your same identity. This isn't here, the wonderful thing about this when we read this is that it's not like, oh, look at Paul, what a cool guy. And, 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 and wow, he has this great sense of identity. I wish I had that identity. You do. That's your identity, Christian. Christian. He has articulated it for you. It's ours as well. And so the question then becomes, do we know it? Do we know that's our identity? Or do we continue to want to set ourselves apart for something else and say, no, this is who I really am. And and so you see, there's, there's incredible comfort in knowing your identity. There's security that's found in knowing your identity. Christian, I would ask you this morning, where were you when you were saved? I want you to pause. I want you to think about it for a moment. Where were you when you got saved? Where were you when you surrendered your life to Christ? What was going on? What was happening? And I'm not just talking about necessarily right there in that service. I'm saying what was going on in your life? What were the circumstances surrounding it? What was it that the Lord was doing as his Holy Spirit was with you, drawing you into repentance? How did it feel when you gave your life to him? That moment when you surrendered everything to him? And from there, how did you then begin living your life? And I would ask you this, has it changed since then? If it has, and not for the better, I would challenge you, get back there. Spend time reflecting on this. I think it was a wonderful thing for Paul as he ministered to various churches, as he, he went all around the, to some degree what was the then known world. As he wrote these letters, he was constantly reminded him, reminding himself of who he was, of what God had done. Because you see, here for Paul, he's 20 years in. And perhaps more than ever, he has a sense of this is who I am. This is what I'm called to do. Which is what again? To preach the gospel. He was set apart for the gospel. And this is the reason then which, which he summarizes in verses 2 through 4. So he says, I'm set apart for the gospel. And and then here in verse 2, he begins to then explain it. And here's a quick summary of what the gospel is. The gospel which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's paraphrase. The Old Testament told us all about this. The Messiah who is Jesus, who is fully human, fully divine, and we know He is who He is because He was dead and He's alive again. There it is. Paul says, this is what was told us. This is the Gospel that I'm set apart for. It's Jesus. You've all heard about it. It's been told for a long time. The Old Testament speaks about it. The prophets spoke about it. He's fully man, fully God. And yes, when he died on the cross, everybody was surprised for a moment, but then he was resurrected, and that proves it he's God. He's the Messiah. Because that's kind of a distinct characteristic, right? The empty tomb, that's kind of a big deal. Right? Of all the leaders in the world, of all the religious leaders, of all the, the, the those who have who have ultimately founded cults and various religions, you can go to their grave. They don't even try to deny it. They're dead. They're dead. But not Jesus. He's alive. Friends, do you consider the truth of the gospel regularly? I and mean, I'm serious. Just foundationally, do you think about the fact that that what you believe in what it does to change your outlook on things? You know, there's there's really not a single thing that we face in life as difficult as circumstances can be as hard of days as we can have there's not a single thing that you can face in this life that when you sit back and go man Jesus is alive doesn't make all that other stuff go away it truly does I'm not suggesting that every day of life is easy but the perspective that we have when we look at things through a biblical worldview when we look at things through the lens of the gospel what it tells us is that death has been defeated and there's the promise of eternity in heaven with him where all of this other stuff that's causing you a bunch of pain and sorrow right now will be no more and then you have hope hope in something that does not disappoint hope in something that does not pass away you consider this i mean, think about what paul has said in just four verses he says i'm paul i'm a slave to christ i've been called set apart for this and so have you christian You may may say, well, I'm not an apostle, or maybe I'm not called to preach. No, you're missing the point. And we'll see that here as Paul continues. Verse 5, through Him we have received grace. You see, there's that encouragement again. It's through Him we've received grace. Unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. And apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You see, now he's sending to his writers and he's saying, you also. And that's why we can look at this and we can say this is our identity too. He says, you also are the called to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, verse 7. And so just as this included all of them, it includes you too. You are called. You've been given grace. You are loved. You're called to be saints. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. You mean those little statues that you can put on your dashboard? you going to make one of us? No, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? What that means is, he says, you're called to be set apart, to be holy. We are now counted, you Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, you are now counted amongst the saints, those that have gone before you, those that are here today, those that will come until such time as he brings all of this to a close called to be saints and and see here's the thing is look at this paul in all of this i've now i've i've gone to different passages for an understanding of paul's background so that we can be clear that paul is indeed humble not boastful but please understand here that as he's writing this he's not including all of that paul's not just and paul has not begun this thing saying well i'm just a miserable guy who's no good who God couldn't use, who's clearly done so many bad things that God couldn't possibly love me anymore or use me or set me apart for ministry. No, he says, here's what I am. I'm called. I'm set apart. you guys too. You're saints too. And so listen, for those of you this morning who continue to struggle to let go of your past and who allow your past through the working of the enemy to bring condemnation upon you, to convince you that you're beyond his reach, that you're beyond his grace, that you couldn't possibly be used, that you couldn't be counted amongst the saints. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You are or have been given grace. You are loved. You are called. You are set apart for a purpose. Know that each and every one of you, and even if there's someone here or someone watching online today who's yet to give their life to Christ, I can say to you, you still are created for a purpose. It's time you surrender your life to Christ and understand what that is. Each and every one of you has value and worth that's inherent because of the fact that you are created in the image of God. And we spend so much time, so much striving, seeking to understand and to validate and find what is ultimately our identity. And we chase after so often all these other things in the world, all all the wrong things in the world to find it. You're called to give your life to Christ, to find value and worth in Him and in Him alone and to allow Him to set you apart for a work. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then so finalizing then his formal greeting, in the proper order, he imparts grace and then peace. It's always that way, guys. Don't ever get it turned around. We have to understand that we know peace when we know grace. Grace comes first. When we receive grace, when we know grace, when we understand that it's his grace that is working in us, that he's bestowed upon us, that it's unmerited favor, then we can understand peace. It's a proper greeting. And so then from here, Paul gets into some more specific details about them and his desire to visit, including his motivations. Verse 8, he says, first, Now, as he says first here, this is really more about him uh, stating a priority uh, than it is really about a list of things. He's not going to go first, second, third, fourth. He's saying first priority of, of, of utmost importance. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You see, their faith here in Rome, and this is largely a, a, a predominantly Gentile church, but there's probably both um, a Gentile and Jewish believers who are part of this congregation, and, um, and probably multiple churches. I mean, no doubt they were meeting from house to house and had fellowship in different places and in different ways. But, but what's going on there and their faith and the things that God was doing has become known. People have heard about what's happening there, and that's a wonderful thing. For God is my witness, verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son. She's claiming God is a witness here that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Wow. Paul, without knowing them, commits to praying constantly for them. Why? Why? because he wants the work to continue he knows that where there is a good thing happening there are bound to be attacks he's praying because it's biblical for us to pray for one another and so i would ask this this morning this is a very real challenge when we see things like this most of us probably go "Yep, okay there should be a challenge here about praying without ceasing how's my prayer life and we should we should ask ourselves how's your prayer life how is your prayer life Are you disciplined in the practice and the habit of prayer? And who are you praying for? We should be, just as Paul was, praying for all believers. Hebrews 13.3 tells us to remember those who are suffering, to remember those who are in chains, remember those who are enduring tribulation. How? As if we were there with them. As if we're there with them. We have a responsibility to pray in this way, to pray for the work of the Spirit in other parts of the world when we hear about what God is doing in a particular place. And I would even say this isn't about saying, well, I hear there's revival happening in the Middle East right now. We should pray about that. Yes, you should. We should be praying about that. I should be praying about that. We should be praying for those believers there. We should be praying that the work would continue. We should be praying that many more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what about even in our own community? What about when we hear what a church is just three blocks down the road and we hear all these wonderful things are going on down there how about me as a pastor do i pray for that Do i pray for that 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 would continue or do i go oh lord why not us lord stop it send them over here that's so foolish that's so dumb right it really is i mean that mindset and i can just speak from a pastor mindset right that that, that mindset what it's rooted in if you kind of draw that out a little bit is this idea that everybody in the world ought to come to your church right? That's where that goes. If you have that kind of thinking, it just means that nobody should go anywhere else. They should all come here, and guess what? That becomes a cult, okay? That's really what that becomes, because you make it about you and a personality, and everybody should go. That's foolishness, and so yes, when we hear hear about things that are even happening in our own community, Lord, praise God. May it continue. Lord, protect them. Protect that pastor. Protect that congregation from attacks that may come, because Lord, it's a good thing that's happening. What else is he praying for? Verse 10, making request, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And so he says, I'm not only praying for you without ceasing because of everything that I'm hearing, but I'm also praying that I could come. He's asking God that he would be able to come to them. But notice first here, he recognizes that it is a matter of the will of God. Oh my, as we seek to adopt the prayer life of Paul, may we bring this along with us that we would be willing to pray. And we've considered this a lot here lately. Lord, your will be done. Which means that there's an acceptance of his will. There's a surrender to his will. That Lord, this is what I want, but it may not be what you want. And Lord, I want what you want more. Guys, we need to be willing to pray that way. Now why does he want to come see them? Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, Okay, So first off, he wants to encourage them. He wants to teach them. He wants to make sure their foundations are strong. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So he's saying it's not just about me coming to you, but it's about the mutual aspect of fellowship that we will enjoy. Paul wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them. What is that? Fellowship. Fellowship. That's what it is. Folks, the Christian life is not a life lived alone. It is not. It doesn't function that way. We are to encourage and be encouraged by one another. And we ought to seek to really ensure that that happens when we come together to build yourself up, to, to say, okay, I'm going to engage in this. I'm going to engage in fellowship. And if every one of us in that process of engaging with one another as we come together, whether it's on a Sunday morning and it's the in-between time in the services, you're, you're coming, you're going, uh, you're hanging around for a newcomer's luncheon, you're coming to prayer and praise, you're coming to Wednesday night, you're going to the the, the, the first Wednesday dinner, come ready to encourage. And imagine if everybody body was coming ready to encourage how encouraging that would be that we would just be a people constantly saying man how are you doing hey i was praying about this you told me about this last week how did it go oh praise god and and, then maybe somebody says says they were just blessed maybe god did something awesome in their life are you celebrating that oh fantastic i'm so happy for you not why not me but no praise god and 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 we're just constantly invested in encouraging one another This is what Paul wanted. So if so desiring this, why had he not yet come? Because it wasn't the Lord's will. Once again, Paul understands just because I want it doesn't mean that that's what God wants. He says, verse 13, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles." You see, Paul understands that the Lord had other things for him to do. And Paul was happy to do what the Lord had for him. All right. Let that be an example to us as well, that we would be happy to do what the Lord has for us. So often we can fall into wanting to do all the other things. But Lord, I want to do this. What do I have for you? Paul enjoyed such contentment in all situations because he knew I'm a slave to Christ. Lord, what you have for me, that's what I want. He says, verse 14, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. What is he saying here? He's a debtor to these people? and he's a, No. He's saying he's in debt to God. He says, I'm a debtor to Christ. And what I owe, I owe it to you guys because of what he's done. What an outlook on life. Do we live that way? I'm a slave and a debtor. Lord, I owe you everything. Let's go back to this again. Did you guys do your homework this past week? You knew it was coming. Come on. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Are you ready? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, what's his mercy? Not getting what we deserve. Father, Lord, I deserve death. You didn't give me death. In view of that, in view of your mercy, I what? Offer my body a living sacrifice. Holy, pleasing to God. What is that? It's your reasonable service, right? It's reasonable. This is what makes sense. This is your your spiritual act of worship. What is worship? It's surrender, right? He goes on to say, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That what? You may test, you may know, you may prove what is that good and perfect and pleasing will of God. Right? You guys are doing it. That's what this is about. And so, for us, if we are living that way, then we are absolutely in a place where we say, ha, My life's not mine. You wake up in the morning, you say, What are you going to do today? I don't know. Whatever God wants me to do today. To some people, that sounds like a cop out. You got to plan better than that. No. If we could truly get to a place where in the morning we rise, before our feet hit the ground, we say, Lord, what do you have? Open hands. Lord, this was my plan, but I get it, Lord, it may not be what, I, what you have for me today. Lord, just show me, lead me, guide me, give me a sensitivity to the leading of your Holy Spirit. How do I know the leading of your Holy Spirit? Because I practice, because Lord, when you speak, I listen. And even in the little things, I start to do it, I'm obedient. Man, this seems funny right now, I feel like the Lord's telling me to do this. Can't be, that seems too weird, I'm not going to do it. You've quenched the Spirit. No, next time say, yes, okay, Lord, I'm listening, I'm going to do it. You do it, holy smokes, Lord, you blessed me. I never saw that coming. Some of these things are as simple as, call this person. I haven't talked to that person in two years. Why would I call that person? Quench the Spirit. Versus, call this person. Wow, haven't talked to them in a long time. Maybe it's important that I call them. Thank you, Lord. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I can't believe you just called me. I've been wanting to talk to you. You have no idea what's going on in my life. I need prayer. I need help. Oh, well, I'm here. Let's pray. Once again, another obedience to, because you thought maybe I should pray with him. Nah, that's too uncomfortable. I'm not going to do that right now. Quench the spirit. Or you go, okay, let's pray right now. Boom, you pray with him. You walk away. What's happened? Your faith is strengthened. You're encouraged. And you practice listening to his voice, hearing him, being obedient. What is obedience? It stems from faith. What is faith? That's how you're justified. That's how all this stuff begins, right? You see how this is happening? And so if we live our lives this way, I'm a debtor. I got nothing, right? I have nothing. It's all about him. So Lord, whatever you have, yes, I want to do this. Lord, if you don't, I'm good. So verse 15, as much as is in me, I am ready. Here's the other thing. He says, I want to come. The Lord has prevented me. But man, when I do, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And so he's a man who also lives ready. He lives ready so that as he's listening to the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit, he's ready to go. Whatever God has for him. He's not going to go, oh, I can't do that right now. He says, got it, let's do it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He says, I'm ready when the Lord lets me. What a way to live. To have a clear sense of day to day, no matter what is going on. And, and, and so here's, here's the other thing, that, that it is, no matter where he's going, no matter what he's doing, he's ready to do that which God has set him apart for. And so it really just becomes about who's the audience today? Where am I working today? Am I working in the doctor's office? Am I working in the school? Am I working at my job? Am I working in the home? Where, where am I at, Lord? What are you doing? Where are you putting me to work at? And we tend to get so caught up in the task And the project and the specific thing that we sort of made this plan about. And then we let those things then become so big. And and then those things, our plans, the things we're going after, the only thing that we think we're supposed to be doing right now because, well, that's just just what I've got today, then becomes the thing that begins to kind of cloud our perspective. And so as Christians, we need to take a step back and see the whole playing field here and go, man, this is just one little thing. I was saying to Ashley, I won't go into all the details of it yesterday, but there's one thing that I just need to kind of go, I got to just be done with this right now. And I just kind of started to chuckle a little bit about it because I was like, "Here, this is a really big thing to me. This thing right here that I feel like i got to just kind of set aside is a really big deal. And I'm like, nobody else in the world even cares or knows. Now, that's not to minimize the things that we face, please understand, but it was just sort of this light bulb moment of like, who cares? Just let it go. Forget about it. I need to take a step back and go, look at the big picture What's God's What is God saying? What does he want me to be focused on right now? What are we ultimately called to? As those who are slaves called set apart. For what? The gospel. That's what you were saved to. We've, 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 we've been dealing with this week after week after week. It's not about you. It's not about us. Nowhere in scripture, I will say this again, nowhere in scripture does it say that I will save you so that your life is peaceful and, and prosperous and that everybody likes you and that everything just goes great. It doesn't say that. It says you were saved for his Glory. That's what ultimately it points to. Once again, not minimizing the trials in our life, but when we understand that, when we understand what we're here for, what we're created for, when we understand that, that then all these things happening in our lives, albeit some of them very hard, but knowing here's what God wants to do, here's what he's called me for, here's what he's set apart for, oh, and by the way, he's constantly working grace and mercy sanctification, oh, wait a second, then, then all these things in my life right now, even these difficult circumstances, are being used by you, God, to make me more like you so that I can continue to do this. Aren't you great? Aren't you good? You're working all things together for good. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Two powerful verses here as we begin to end, verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And here he says, for he's built all the way to this, and he's basically said, This is who I am. This is who I am. I'm a slave, nothing more. I'm indebted to him, and it's to your benefit. That's it. Ultimately, I'm not ashamed of this. I have no need to tell you all this other stuff about me and who I am. I have no need to try and accomplish anything else. It's the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of it. And we need to ask ourselves, Am I ashamed? In what ways in your life might you be suggesting that you're ashamed by the gospel? Is it the way in which you articulate who you are and what you're about? Is it what you're finding your identity in? Is it when people ask you who you are and and what do you do and what do you like and what do you spend your time on that you tell them about everything else other than what it is that Jesus has done in your life and that ultimately that's what defines you? Is it when you find yourself in a crowd of a whole lot of people and you assume that they probably don't believe in Jesus and so you just want to try and keep it quiet so you can keep the peace while you're there? A bunch of intellectuals that are talking, supposed intellectuals, and they're you know all this different stuff, and, and you want to say, well, actually, I believe this, but man, I'm just going to kind of hold it back right now because they're going to think I'm foolish. They're going to think I'm dumb. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, which is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Yes, it's going to seem foolish to them, but we know it's truth, and you believe in it, don't be ashamed of it. Mark chapter 8, verse 38 For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I don't want that to be me. And he goes on to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. That's dunamis. It's from which we it's the word that we get dynamite from. That's explosive power. It is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And we're going to come back to this verse next week as we continue on the second half of of, uh, of Romans chapter one. We're out of time now, but here's the thing: this is the thing that all people are searching for. They're searching for identity. They're searching for hope. They're searching for transformation. And and they think they're finding it. And it's in all the wrong places. And it only disappoints. And we have it. We have that which means the power to, to be saved. The power to bring change to every person's life. And you, Christian, you know it. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. From faith to faith means that it's about faith. That's truly what it's saying. It's saying this is all about faith, believing. Now I'm confident that through our time, and I'm going to invite the worship team up as we take communion, I'm confident that through our time in Romans, our faith will be strengthened. Our understanding will be enhanced of the foundations of our faith. I want us to grow in our knowledge so that we can defend our faith. When we learn the validity of our faith, we are less ashamed when we are able to articulate, when we are able to give a defense for the hope that is within us, we are not ashamed. And then with that, we engage the culture. And so this idea of exalt, equip, engage, it's it's rooted in much of this. Why do we then do that? Why do we engage the culture? Because they need it. Because people need to know that there is a God and that they can stand before him justified, cleansed. And that they're constant striving and seeking and searching for affirmation and validity and security and hope and wholeness and love and acceptance and peace and satisfaction and rest and so much more that it's there in him if they just believe it. And so that's where it starts. For Paul here in his introduction, that's, that's the, what he lays out, that it starts here with the gospel and our belief in it. It begins here, right here. What a fitting way for us to begin our study in Romans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to this incredible word that, Lord, you have used to change lives throughout history. And, Lord, I pray that same power would be on display here, Lord. You would work in our lives similarly, Lord, throughout these next several months as we endeavor to study it as well. And here now, Lord, as we take of communion, our desire is to do so with a, with a right heart before you. To do that which has been explained to us here in these first 17 verses. It's the gospel. That's what communion is about. It's a declaration of what it is that you've done for us. Your body, broken on our behalf. Not a single bone broken in fulfillment with scripture. But your body opened, pierced. Your blood shed to wash us that through belief in you, we're made right. And so, Father, we take here today in a way in which we do pray, Lord, is pleasing to you, but also in a way that strengthens our faith, reminds us of what it is that we believe, and prompts us, Lord, inspires us, like Paul, to remember that we were called, set apart for a purpose. And that's to take this truth that we celebrate out to a lost and dying world. Father, do that work in our hearts here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.